Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health. In this episode, we are looking at how global health leaders make the move to the cut and thrust of politics. And we're going to be talking to one of our young leaders who's doing precisely that. Now, viewers of the podcast on LinkedIn and YouTube will notice that we're not in our usual studio. We're in Southern California, and we happen to be here on the very day that Hurricane Hillary is rolling through, the first hurricane to hit California, Southern California, in over 80 years. Um, Our guest was supposed to be here in person, but because of the weather, is not able to do so. So it's a real pleasure for me to invite Gerard Ratavosian to the show. Girard has a PhD in global health. He recently served in the Biden administration and worked in PEPFAR, and he's had an illustrious career as uh, an AIDS advocate in both the NGO sector and in the pharma sector, the private sector as well. Girard, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Ben, it's so great to see you. Good to be with you. I'm sorry I'm not there in person. So it came as a surprise to many of us, Girard, when you announced that you were going to leave the Biden administration and take a run at being the successor to Congressman Adam Schiff in California's District 30. What made you decide to do that? Ben, it wasn't easy. You know, I I had a um, a good job in, in Washington, D.C. As you know, I was working for PEPFAR and Ambassador Kangazong. We were just getting started. And um, there was this big opportunity with Adam Schiff deciding to run for for Senate, uh, we had an opening in my hometown. This is where I was born and raised uh, for the first time in in 22 years. And um, I wanted to run to to make Congress work better. I feel like there's been so much dysfunction, um, so much extremism that that's led to gridlock. And I hear over and over again about how some of the biggest challenges that people are facing are 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 still not addressed, like like housing, like climate change. Uh, and these things have have broad public uh, opinion and support. And so I want to bring my experience working in Congress, uh, working in Washington uh, to be able to work uh, and make Congress work better for people. Um, I also am running because of representation. This district, Ben, is actually uh, one of the most diverse in, in the country. Uh, it's got some great uh, parts of Los Angeles, including a lot of cities where Armenians live. It's got West Hollywood, which is a which is a huge LGBTQ community there. And I've been told it's one of the queerest districts and it's certainly the most, there are the most number of Armenians in this district than anywhere in the country. And so it's about time for representation and representation is very important in Congress. Well, I really want to press you on the Armenian question because again, many of us uh, who've worked with you over the years have probably been fairly unfamiliar about your Armenian American roots. Um, and I wonder if you could just sort of explain a little bit about that and why it's important for Armenian Americans to have greater representation in Congress. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I've always I've always been proud of my Armenian heritage. I've always flaunted uh, being Armenian. Uh, I've reminded you that Cher is Armenian over the years. Right. And uh, I think what's what we have here is an opportunity where we we actually need to build power in Congress to address uh, issues that are important, uh, foreign policy challenges that are important for for Armenians. Uh, for years, we've relied on 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 the goodwill and and support of allies like Congressman Schiff, um, Congressman Barbara Lee uh, up in Northern California, Speaker Pelosi, 
uh, and, and and there's a congressional HIV AIDS caucus with uh, sorry a congressional Armenian caucus with not a single Armenian in it. And so that that that, that I mean it's great to have those allies, but even with what's what's happening now in Artsakh um, on the other side of of, of the planet, uh, we we need attention to what's happening in Armenia, and we need Armenian voices in in, in Washington and in Congress to to demand action. That's that's what we haven't had. Do you have relatives still in Armenia? Do you have family there still? I do, I do. Uh, my parents, uh, let me, t- I, I'll tell you the story. I think you know, but my parents came to this country in in the 70s, mid-70s. They came to LA. My mom's side came from Lebanon. Uh, dad's side came from Armenia. They were actually, um, my dad was born in Siberia uh, because uh, my grandfather was an anti-communist activist. And so they got exiled to Siberia with a, a lot of other communities at that time. And so that's where he was He was born. They eventually uh, sought asylum here in the United States. My parents met in L.A. They got married here in L.A. And that's where I was born. But uh, the, a lot of family has come to the Los Angeles area. Some are in Northern California over the years. But what's happened is in the, in years past, just, just recent years, uh, we've seen some family members move back to Armenia. And so I do have family. I have cousins in Armenia now. Uh, and, um, and so there's, I still have strong connections to, to the country. I've been, I've been over 10, 10, 12 times over the years. I think you did some work around hepatitis B and C over there as well over the last few years. Am I remembering that rightly? I did. I did, Ben. I, I've always tried to, to include, um, Armenian issues in, in my work. Even, even when I was at Amphar, we did, a, um, we, we supported some NGOs doing some LGBTQ advocacy work in Armenia. Uh, we worked on the HIV immigration ban that Armenia also had, and it was removed only a few years after uh, the United States finally removed it. Uh, and then when I was at Gilead, we we organized the first ever bilateral agreement between the uh, Minister of Health of Armenia and, and Gilead to be able to bring hepatitis C medications uh, at no cost to, to Armenians. Uh, and so that was a really, I was proud to be a part of that. I wanted to ask you one more thing. Um, about your Armenian connections, and I think you touched on it, in terms of the continuing dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And of course, it's been a simmering um, war, as it were, since the end of the, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But of course, it got a little heated in 2020 with some very significant gains on the Azerbaijani side. And now there is um, you, you know, a, a blockade that they're imposing to the to this day to the community of Armenians that are sort of caught within the current borders of Azerbaijan. And um, how much of an issue is that for Armenian American voters? And and what do they expect the U.S. to do? Particularly, of course, as the Russians who were supposed to be monitoring the ceasefire. Um, well, they're failing at that as well as failing in their invasion of Ukraine. So what should the U.S. be doing? Yeah, Ben, this is, you know, it's a really difficult time for Armenians now, actually. Um, that 2020 war that you referenced was a big turning point for our future. Uh, we did lose land, like you referenced, and it hasn't been the same since. We've always been on a defensive posture. The country has been in a de- defensive posture since then. And in Azerbaijan, with the support of uh, of um uh, of Turkey continues to make advances. Uh, so, th- you know, this is a time to really reach out to your Armenian friends and colleagues and let them know that you stand with them because it is, uh, it, it, 
really the future is on the line. I think this is the greatest existential threat that Armenia has ever had. Um, lands that built, that Armenians have built and have lived on for 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 thousands of years uh, c- could perish any 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 day now. There are 120,000 Armenians living in in Artsakh, as you mentioned, uh, and they've been cut off cut off from the world. There's no electricity going into the country. There's uh, the Lachin corridor, so to speak, has been been cut off by Azerbaijan for over eight months. Uh, and the Luis Moreno Campo, the famous ICC prosecutor, just ten days ago. Um, called the genocide. That I mean, this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. He, he prosecuted uh, President Al Bashir in Sudan of, of, of the genocide in Darfur. And so, when he says genocide, that that means that there's an international obligation uh, for the international community to act, right? And so, uh, there, that's why you're seeing um, in the streets of LA over the last few days thousands of Armenians protesting. They shut down the 134 freeway uh, a few times over the last week, and they're demanding action. They want lawmakers they want the united states they want president biden to to, to stand up and protect uh protect these people in Artsakh and, and also stand up for peace uh this president um has done the most for armenians uh, president biden has done the most in recognizing the armenian genocide i was honored to have played a very small role as part of his transition team that advanced this policy forward uh but now there's a second armenian genocide on his watch and and, and i know that the president and his team are are following carefully and i hope that they uh, they take uh, take action really soon. I know Secretary Blinken has also been prioritizing this. Uh, but as you say, uh, with Russia now, uh, for years, has been supportive of Armenia. But now with, with, with Russia um, advancing their own illegal war, there is an opportunity for, for Armenia to pivot to the West and to look to, to the United States and for, for the United States to also extend an arm uh, and bring Armenia closer to, to our values and to our democracy and to, and to the issues that we stand for. Not to leave this point just yet, but uh, and, and, and maybe you're already becoming the terrific politician that we all aspire you to be, but what concretely would you want the United States to do in what is a very complicated part of the world and, yeah. and, and where the bear that is Russia is, is down but not necessarily out yet? Yeah, but the United States uh, has already stepped in uh, to to broker some peace agreements between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. So have the European Union. I actually have called a couple of days ago for the full suspension of these uh, peace agreement uh, discussions. I think this. I think Secretary Blinken should pull out of these agreements and actually get on the phone with Aliyev in Azerbaijan and ask him to lift the blockade. If he hasn't done that already, he should be doing that every single day until and and they should put pressure on on Azerbaijan to to to, to lift that blockade. Um, I hope I hope the United States uh, raises this issue at the at the um, UN uh, uh, Security Council. Uh, there was a meeting earlier this week, but that's not enough. I think we need more attention, and I hope our our ambassador in the UN is, is focused on it. So there's a lot more the United States can do. Uh, the, er, earlier in the in the year, there was uh, the U.S. had helped helped lead these these peace negotiations to to address a range of issues in the region. But that 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 the time for that is over now. Now there's a humanitarian crisis. There's data that shows that um, uh, uh, newborns are, are are dying at a greater rate than they were three months ago. Uh, there's starvation, and so that is the emergency threat that we have to address right now. That's what the United States should focus on. And and clearly an issue for um, the Armenian American community in your in your district. Yeah. What yeah. are some of the other issues that you're you're hearing about that play? Particularly to your expertise and skills, and of course, I'm thinking of healthcare. You know, and especially what's happening post 
post Roe, post the Supreme Court decision last year. Yep. Um, and you mentioned the LGBT community, this this wave of anti-trans sentiment that is being exploited um, really quite horrendously. What what are you picking up in terms of issues that matter to your folk? Ben, there's so many challenges. So it's been 10 weeks that I've been on the campaign trail. I've spent um, at least a couple hours a day each of those 10 weeks um, uh, meeting with voters and, and door knocking uh, in different communities. I think that makes me a greater, can a, a more effective candidate because I, I learn directly from people about what's on their mind. I, it's interesting that what I hear over and over again is people saying, are you crazy? You left your job. You had a great job in Washington. Why would you go to Congress to, it's so dysfunctional. It's so out of touch. And, and it is true. It is out of touch. Our Supreme Court is out of touch. And, uh, but in, despite that dysfunction, I, I, I'm not cynical about Washington. I actually have seen how Washington can work for people. Uh, and so uh, I've been trying to tell people that there's, there are opportunities for, for us to make progress and to in increase dialogue so that we can actually address some of the challenges. People tell me uh, the housing crisis um, it has, it is still a major, major issue, not only in L.A., all across California, as you know, as well. Uh, homelessness, everyone, you feel it, you see it. Um, uh, Mayor Bass has done uh, a marvelous job in, in this uh, Inside Safe program, but there's a lot more to do to, to, to close the tap upstream and, and address the root causes of homelessness. Uh, that includes mental health support. It, it also includes um addressing the skyrocketing cost of, of housing in the first place. So less people fall into, into that state of homelessness. Education is top of mind. I think what the Supreme Court did with the with the student loans has has put basically a lot of students at risk in terms of their own future. And uh, and now students are, are are looking at getting two or three different jobs to be able to to stay afloat. And that's that's just ridiculous. You mentioned LGBTQ rights, of course. So this um, personally impacted me because, um, as you know, my my partner Michael and I are getting married in just a few weeks. And a, a couple weekends ago, we had to call down all of our vendors to make sure that the vendors were still going to move forward with our gay marriage. I mean, how, this is 2023. How ridiculous is that? And I tell you, one of them actually, we didn't hear back in a couple for a couple of weeks, and we were worried that uh, they might pull out. And 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 some of them proactively reached out to us, which we appreciated, but. The point is, the Supreme Court's ruling is so vague that it allows for people at the at the at the for you know to to discriminate against anyone just in the in the interest of expression. And so we were very concerned about that how that might impact uh, ourselves. But 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 I think the greatest greater threats are what's coming, right? And we know they're we know they're out to get um, uh, uh, strip away more rights for LGBTQ people. We know they're targeting trans youth all around the country. Uh, we need to stand up and fight for these people, but that means we need more representation in Congress as well. This district, which is one of the queerest in the country, has never had an LGBTQ representative in Congress. That has to change. Although Adam Schiff, of course, a great, great ally, but, great ally. but yeah, as as we demand seats at the table. You know, Jirai, you said something um, just now about having seen how Congress works or doesn't work. Yeah. from being a le legislative aide to Barbara Lee to having worked in the administration for the uh, AIDS movement and for uh, the private sector, you were often walking the halls of Congress. Why do you think it's important to be a Congress person? What, what is it that you can really bring there that you couldn't in, 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 a, in those other roles? Ben, I think I think young, more young people need to 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 take matters in their own own hand. I, I think that's the only way we're going to actually bring change. There's so many issues 
that Congress is, is not addressing. And, and, and most of these issues have broad public uh, opinion support, guns, immigration, climate change, um, artificial intelligence. What Congress, what, they've done nothing on AI. AI impacts all aspects of our living. Uh, and, and if young people, uh, and, and I'm not saying I'm, uh, I'm, well, I am saying I'm young, actually. I should say I'm young. But young, young people like me and younger people that, uh, than me, we should, we should be, all of us should like be like me, like, like yourself. <laughs> uh, we have to change the face of Congress because Congress has to represent uh, and work for, for people, and that's not happening. Um, there are issues that remain bipartisan. Issues that you and I have been lucky to work on. I've, I've felt very fortunate to be part of the HIV community my entire life. I've, it's the only issue I've worked on my entire life, no matter where I've worked. And uh, that issue continues to be bipartisan. But even that is is, is tenuous now, right? And so, well, I want to I want to push you on that, Jira. There are a couple of couple of things. Obviously, the first most important one from a global perspective mm-hmm. is what is happening with appropriations right now. Here we are at the end of August, coming into September 2023, and there is the very real chance that PEPFAR will not be reauthorized. PEPFAR, which with the Global Fund, keeps millions, tens of millions of people alive uh, through HIV medication. And and do you really think that Congress is uh, competent, is um, uh, professional enough to sort of put these really bizarre political extremities to one side and just do the right thing and get uh, and get the plan reauthorized. But I've been I'm optimistic that Will Pepfar will be reauthorized. I think um, I think that there's still a lot of goodwill on both sides to get this done. Uh, what, what I'm worried about though is that the threat this time is real, and I hope that those folks who are in Washington working on this, I know that they are. Uh, that they think they take that threat with, um, uh, you know, in in a serious way, in, in a grave way. We've had we've had threats to PFR reauthorization in the past, but this is different. This definitely is different, and it's part of a bigger uh, issue with Congress uh, because of uh, because of extremism, right? And I still think that we can overcome. I think that there are some uh, leadership issues that have to be uh, addressed from both both parties, and I think. Uh, I think uh, advocates, uh, I know advocates are doing that good work now to be able to get us to the finish line. Uh, if, if PEPFAR is unauthorized by that specific September 30th date, it doesn't mean that the program goes away. So I don't want your viewers to think that uh, PEPFAR is closing shop on September 30th. But le- the bigger problem is that the 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 budget resolution expires uh, at the end of that fiscal year. And if Congress can't pass that, none, PEPFAR obviously it doesn't matter because the government's going to be shut down. So the, I think the basic so PEPFAR is part of that, but I think it, there's a bigger issue at play here with Congress. Now, you spoke about leadership, and obviously we can see it in the struggles that the um, uh, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, I guess another Californian, um, is having in managing his um, delegation, his, uh, his uh, Congress people. But you mentioned leadership on both sides, and and so it would be remiss of me not to ask, what more would you want to see from uh, from Democrats in Congress now? Now, yeah. Well, Ben, you know, I was I was one of the five staffers that was lucky to work on the 2013 reauthorization, uh, and I was working for Congresswoman Barbara Lee at the time, uh, and uh, we had support. What we had done at that time uh, was get support from 
the leadership, both on the Democratic side. We had Speaker Pelosi's, um, so she wasn't Speaker at the time, she was Leader Pelosi at the time, we had her support. But more importantly, my Republican colleagues had Speaker Boehner's support. We knew all along that we had Speaker Boehner's support. We were work, we were one, his staffer was one of the, one of the ones we were working with almost weekly. That's not happening now. And, and that's what we need to see more of. And, and I think both on the Democratic side and on the Republican side, we're, we're talking about what's happening at, at the committee level because those those important committees are the ones that advance the bill forward. But we haven't done our job of securing the broader political support uh, in both the Democratic side and on the um, Republican side. So, so again, um, in terms I'm of doing this, yeah. yeah, and I'm doing this because, of course, you, know, you, you have a unique view on this that perhaps nobody else has. Um, but what more do the Democrats have to do? Where do they have to put more pressure in? Because you 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 feel that although PEPFAR was, um, you know, George Bush's, um, you know, signature global program, although, as you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Congresswoman Barbara Lee, she would uh, kick me if I did not remind us all that she was also there right from the start. Right from the start. Well, yeah. But what is it about the Democrats that they have to do? What is it that you want them to do? Ben, I want I want Speaker Jeffries to, to speak out about that far. Uh, I'm sure he's making phone calls behind the scenes, but but he should be doing more 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 publicly uh, and, and call. Uh, um, sorry, not uh, leader Jeffries, I should say he should be calling Speaker McCarthy and say that this is important. Both sides, we should work together to get this done. President Bush was just in Washington earlier this year. I had the honor of meeting him again for the fourth, fifth time, and um, you know he should and and he should be making phone calls as well. I know I know he is. Um, I also where is the Senate leadership? I, we haven't heard a lot from from senators uh, who are not part of the authorizing committee to speak out about that far. And I think I, I think those are the voices that we need either either behind the scenes or publicly to be able to move this forward. It seems like it's stuck, but but I know we'll get to the other side. Uh, but people need to speak up. But you know what, Ben? I think we need to show them that people care about this. We need to show them that PEPFAR uh, is an important issue for 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 American diplomacy. Uh, it's an important issue because of our presence uh, across Africa and Asia. I had the very um, awesome opportunity to be able to represent the United States government to South Africa when I was working at PEPFAR, and and I saw firsthand the, the not only the human impact of the program. But the diplomatic impact that the that 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 the five hundred million dollars a year in the South African uh, 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 program impacts in terms of U.S. South African relations that is very real. That is real in the face of growing Russian influence in the region, uh, growing Chinese influence in the region. So this is smart uh, national security for the United States. It, it is, and that is actually something I wanted to to ask you about because I think one of the things that makes the presence of global health leaders um, in positions of authority as parliamentarians, Congress people, is yeah. the chance to put the global health agenda firmly into the global security agenda. And I, I, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. There is a British podcast that I listen to a lot called The Bunker. And um, the conversation in one episode um, from a commentator, Alexandreo, was that you could see the failure of British policy on immigration playing out in its extraordinary behavior in decimating its overseas development aid funding, and that um, they didn't seem to understand that ODA, Overseas Development Assistance, was 
crucial in building economic, social, and political security in those countries that they fear um, will become the, the, the sources of much illegal immigration. Mm. And I don't think that's well understood enough in Europe, the UK particularly. Do you feel that there is a greater understanding by American voters of the value, the strategic value that PEPFAR brings to US security interests? I think, uh, I, I don't, I don't. Ben. I, I think that we, in certain cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, New York, where we have a large, um, you know, established global health presence and, and organizations working on global health and development, uh, in those siloed communities, I think there are. But if you, across the country, and in, 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 there, um, I don't think that's well understood. I know there are organizations that are working to, 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 to raise that awareness uh, because the private sector is hugely involved in PEPFAR. Um, scientists across the country are hugely involved in PEPFAR. So these impacts uh, and, and, and PEPFAR is integrated into, into the American economy, into, into the American middle class even, right? And so we have to tell that story so that people see how our overseas assistance actually helps bring, bring um, uh, impact uh, to our own communities here. Uh, the other issue I would just say, Ben, is, you know, with the, just take it back to the election that we're talking about here. Anyway, you look at it. My former boss, Congresswoman uh, Barbara Lee, is now running against um, the congressperson who represents me currently, Adam Schiff. Uh, and, and what's scary about that is that both of those members of, 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 of Congress will not come back to the House of Representatives in 2024. We'll lose both of them. Hopefully one of them will become senator uh, and but we're losing a, a, a huge, where a, it creates a huge leadership vacuum in Barbara Lee's HIV leadership. Uh, and in, for Adam Schiff, who's been a champion on Armenian issues, huge leadership vacuum for, for Armenian issues. But on the topic of HIV, I helped the congresswoman start the bipartisan congressional HIV AIDS caucus. And, 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 and I want to win so that I can co go and co-chair that caucus with the Republican counterpart so that we can continue that pressure and have a more sophisticated conversation about how foreign assistance is is part of our uh, our, our own interests and, and national security, just as you outlined with ODA and what's happening in Europe. And and I think people with my background, people who have that experience, we need to step up because we have a responsibility to be able to to, to advance those conversations forward. We should demand more from people who are running for Congress, and we should demand more from from people who are in Congress to be able to advance those conversations in the way that you beautifully articulated. You know, there's one other HIV-related issue I wanted to raise with you, Gerard. Okay. Perhaps a little bit of uh, those of us in the AIDS movement airing our dirty laundry. Um, but uh, there was a recent article in thebody.com, which is right. one of the most important HIV community newsletters and resources in the United States from um, one of the senior editors, one Michael Porter II, and and he came out as having had uh, what can only be described as a Me Too moment, mm -hmm. where he felt that his um, you know, that he was abused by a leader uh, in the HIV community, and he has called for um, a you know a sort of unmasking of this behaviour. And and you know, I confess, I recall during the course of my career, uh, when I was younger, some things like that happened to me um, and others. And, and you know, we would dismiss it as someone having wandering hands. 
or in a very British way, calling it UBC, uncalled for bodily contact. Wow. But actually, it is a very deep, serious issue, and we we yeah. can't sweep it under the uh, under the carpet any longer. So I just wondered what your take um, on it is, and 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 what what your thoughts are that the uh, American HIV community, and it's not restricted to the US, of course, but what we need to do here. Yeah, Ben. Ben, thanks for raising it. I, I read the article. I think it was Friday. It's uh, I. I commend I commend him for bringing his story forward. I know it's not easy, and uh, and and I, I love that he's getting a lot of support um, on social media for 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 his for his courage, right? And that's what that is. Um, I think I don't know the exa- all the particulars of the case, but but I, I do think that we HIV has set the standard for what it means to fight for human rights for. Uh, what we demand from society in terms of the way we treat those who in the, in the greatest needs, we learn that from the HIV movement, right? And so we, we, we have a responsibility in the HIV movement to, to preserve those, those protections and, and create that safe space for, for, for all of us to, to operate in it, right? And so um, I hope the leadership of that organization uh, is moving quickly to, to investigate, and I hope uh, leaderships of other organizations are doing the exact same thing and messaging their staff to say, uh, that you know what steps they're taking forward to to make sure that that doesn't happen to anyone who's worked in the HIV community or in the broader public health community. Um, can, if I can share a personal story, Ben, I, I've only talked about this once before, but it's because of the HIV community that I had the courage to come out. Finally, it took me a long time to be able to to do that, and uh, it was in my mid thirties. Uh, and it, it's it's because of. Uh, the love bubble that we create in the HIV movement, and in particular, the AIDS life cycle that I participated in uh, twice from San Francisco, cycling from San Francisco to Los Angeles, that I had uh, surrounded myself with people who stood up for 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 uh, integrity and and for and for human rights and for love and for um, tolerance. That is what ultimately gave me the courage to be able to to, to come out and be my true self. And, and so there, th- we have that. Res- we have to preserve that for for for, for people uh, and for the HIV movement because there's still a lot to do. Um, I also want to say, Ben, we've talked about this before, but there are all sorts of abuses of power, uh, and this is not unique to HIV. But but I think we we have to really, and this is related to to the congressional piece too. We have to look at how we're we're creating an opportunity for the next generation of leaders, for young people to to move into those leadership positions. Uh, many of my friends, and I've worked across uh, uh, both in government and in the NGO community with, with 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 longtime leaders, and I think we all have to, you know, we have to ask ourselves if we've been in the same role for 15 years and doing the same organization, same work in the same organization for 15 years. I think we have to ask ourselves whose space are we occupying, you know, and 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 maybe even ask ourselves what are we doing to to actively train and recruit the person who's going to take take your job. And, and sometimes we, we forget to do that. And uh, and I think we if we don't create that opportunity for young people to move into those leadership roles, uh, and that's true for Congress as well, um, it's, we're not going to make progress on some of the pressing issues that all of us are facing now. Um, I like that you brought it back to Congress as well, because you, you look at, well, I'm thinking of the Senate now, but um, Senator Feinstein, um, Senator Mitch McConnell, whatever you think of them, um, it's a real pressure, I think, to be in your 80s um, and above and to remain relevant, not wanting to be ageist about it, 
But nonetheless, it does have to be spoken about. Look, yeah. there are a couple of other questions I wanted to ask you. And it's an inevitable one. Um, and I would suppose I should ask you what happens if you're not successful in your bid to be uh, to be Congress, uh, the successor to to Congressperson Schiff. Mm. And I am sure you will tell me, Ben. I'm just focused on this at the moment. I'm not giving anything else any thought. So I, I thought I'd do my best to try and outsmart you. If I have <laughs> never been able to do so, but I'll try. Um, are you committed? to a career in politics now? Has that become clear to you? Well, that's easy to answer, Ben. No, no, no. I'm not career, I'm not committed to a career in politics. I'm committed to a career of, of change, of bringing change and helping people. That's what I'm committed to. Um, my entire life, that's been because HIV has given me that opportunity to, 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 to bring that change and to fight for rights and to fight for access to, um, to, to medicines and to fight for access to uh, biotechnology. Uh, I think that's that's what motivates me. Uh, working in Congress is a vehicle to advance those, uh, whether it's for finishing the, the job on HIV by 2030 or, or um, fighting for, for my feature of my homeland, making student loans uh, uh, more affordable for, for, for borrowers. I, that's how I'm that's how I see it. Um, so I am committed to winning. I did. I had huge disruptions to my personal life to be able to come back to, to my hometown to be able to run for this seat uh, and I, and that and I'm and I'm and I'm focused on winning as you said um, but uh, that's I, but I approach my jobs as where can I make the most impact on, on a particular issue uh, and and what creates what environment allows me to be able to do that and, and uh, in this moment uh, it, it, it's 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 the seat it's this it's this opening in Los Angeles. Uh, where I'm from and in the community that I want to represent. And I, I mean, and to be totally transparent, we need more global health leaders in politics. I think yeah, the people yeah. who have come through uh, the AIDS movement, the global health, the global AIDS movement more broadly, have unique insights. And as we build up uh, the leadership and make way for Southern uh, and and younger leadership to to lead the AIDS organizations, I, I think there is a real need to think about how we can encourage some of our next generation leaders to take that risk and look to become candidates. What advice would you give them? I agree, Ben. And, and this is why I was so looking forward to having this conversation, because I know your listeners are a big part of the HIV and global health movement more broadly. Uh, my advice is to jump in. Don't think too much about it. That was my that was my approach for AIDS life cycle. Uh, I never, you know, the story because you were my early supporter. Uh, I didn't have a bicycle when I when I signed up for AIDS life cycle. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, now I did a little bit more research on this congressional piece, of course. But but uh, don't overthink it. Do it. Take you you can do it. That's that's my advice. That's what my mentors told me. That's what my parents have told me. That's what my Beyonce tells me every day, and, um, and 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 that's the advice that I have for anyone, any young person thinking about whether it's the CEO role in your organization or running for Congress in your in the district that you live in. Take it, do it, seize it, and 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 make the change that you want to see, right? And 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 that's what I'm doing here in Los Angeles. This is my this, I felt the responsibility to do this, uh, and and um, you know I'm worried, Ben. We've 2030 is around the corner. corner. There's so many global challenges uh, that are that are at stake, and 
I'm worried that we're not going to have a future sustainable development goal to to work towards. And I don't know what that means for the HIV response. I don't know what that means for for broader development issues. Uh, and if we don't have um, members of Congress who are not, who are going to lead that charge, it's going to be very easy for the United States to, to to turn its attention to a lot of other worthy challenges. Where the United States thinks that there is a quicker fix and a clear exit strategy. And right. that, of course, right. is a, a, a huge challenge for, for, for us advocates um, looking for a long-term sustained investment. Well, Gerard, I guess we've reached the top of the hour and we've come to the end of our conversation for today. Um, I wish you every success and the best of luck in your campaign. How can viewers and listeners find out more information about what you're doing and, and, and how potentially they might be able to help your campaign? Thank you, Ben. Thanks. It's, um, it was a, I, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen, I've been listening to it since, since your first episode. So it's an honor for me to be on it. Uh, I, uh, you know, I encourage people to, to look me up. Uh, we have a website, of course, uh, gerard4ca.com. It's J-I-R-A-I-R-4-C-A.com. Sign up. Um, we have a number of events coming up. I'll, I'll be in the Bay Area for three events uh, in September. I'm, I'll be in D.C. I'll be in Boston, in New York. Uh, we we're, we're have to fundraise, right? One of the things we haven't talked about is the reality of actually winning. And that means that it's not just talking. You actually have to raise money. You have to be a viable candidate to be able to break through to the system because there's a lot of career politicians that are fighting against me in this race right now. And, and, and I'm the underdog. People have called me the AOC of the race, which I think is a badge of honor, right? And so, but you need to fight and, and, and raise money and, and, and take that seriously, right? That's what I'm trying to do. Um, folks can sign up on the website to, to support me or to, or to volunteer uh, and be part of that change that we're trying to build uh, uh, within LA for, for Congress. Well, Gerard, we'll be watching your progress very closely, and I hope we'll be able to invite you back on uh, to the podcast and uh, get your thoughts and insights on key issues and see how you're doing. So, yeah, sending you all the very best. Love that, Ben. Thank you so much. Thanks for this opportunity again. Yeah. Uh, it's great to see you, if not in person. So close, yeah. So close, yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much to Gerard Rasavosian. Thanks to our producer and director, Eric Sperr of NewsDoc Media. Um, our production assistants are Waisha Raphael and Will Lansdale. A Shot in the Arm podcast is at home now at the Global Listening Project with one of its initiatives. You can find us, of course, on YouTube, LinkedIn and all your favorite podcast platforms. We're doing a subscription drive. And if you like our content, please, 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 consider inviting two of your very best friends to subscribe to us as well. So have a great week and a safe week, everybody.